The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. G.C. Berkauer is the man in the Netherlands who has, in our generation, written a large number of books. He's a very learned, erudite, reformed theologian, a most remarkable man. He knows everything. <laughs> and and uh, more nearly so than anybody else, I suppose, that I know of. And he's written... He has a series of dogmatical studies, and he was planning 19 volumes, and he's close to that now. They're not great big ones like Bart's, but they are very respectable studies. Now, as you know, back of Berkhauer, there was Herman Bavink and Abram Kuyper in the Netherlands. Abram Kuyper came to this country to Princess Seminary to give the Stone Lectures in 1898, and they dealt with Calvinism. And in those stone lectures, he sets forth, he says, I couldn't speak about anything else here than about Calvinism. That's the natural thing for me to speak of when I come to you here at Prince's Seminary. Well, he couldn't speak on that subject there now anymore today. I mean, you could till till, uh, when I was there as a student. Then there was still the galaxy of great Reformed theologians there. I mean, Dr. Gerardus Voss, it was biblical theology, some of you may have been studying already. And there was Robert Dick Wilson of Old Testament fame, and Dr. Oswald T. Ellis, and William P. Armstrong of New Testament, and J. Gresson Machen, and, and some others. Well, now, under he came to Princeton, and there sat B.B. Warfield, Benny, as they called him. <laughs> the most learned theologian, I suppose, that this country has a... Do, do I dare to say that in the South here? <laughs> oh, he was a product of the South. <laughs> anyway, oh, just let me say, one of the most. Dabney, maybe, or Gerardo. The one Dr. Smith has written on, excluded. Well, here, people... B.B. Warfield sat there, G.G. Voss sat there, and all it, was, it must have been a sight to see. And here he came and says, now, if we are in this country, he says, or anywhere in the world, to set the Christian faith over against modern unbelief, and then he meant modernism, of course, because Hermann and Harnack were the chief figures of the day, and they were richly in the back of ritual is, is, is of course, Schleiermacher, the great, great 19th century modern eminentistic theologians if we are to set the Christian faith over against that as a challenge it must be in the form of Calvinism because only in it do you have a full-fledged claim and only if you speak of Christianity in relation to science in relation to philosophy in relation to history in relation to art and this last lecture was in relation to the future philosophy of the future now it was at Prince's Seminary then. Prince
Princeton was then, the old Princeton, we may say, was the bulwark in this country for the reform. For, I would say that is certainly the truth. There were other smaller places, Grand Rapids, the Christian Reformed Church. But they didn't begin to compare as to magnitude and as to standing in the religious theological world with Princeton Seminary in those days. Well, then a little bit later came Herman Bavinck. He was the great dogmatician. He wrote this famous four-volume Kareva Meta Dogmatique, Reformed Dogmatics. If you read that, you'll read it. And if you don't, learn it. <laughs> to read it, I would say, Mr. Paul Woolley just learned Dutch just so he could read that book in Dutch. Now, there was Hep in between there, Valentine Hep, who has a book on the testimony of Spiritu Sancti. But in recent times now, for some many years, two, three decades, Dr. Ber G.C. Berkauer has been the great dogmatician, as they call him over there. Now, Mr. Smith did his doctoral work under Berkauer. If I make mistakes, you correct me. Very well. Now, there were three things in which he was always interested. The first one was on the question of scripture. And he wrote in the early, oh, his first book, let me say, was on uh, Holof and Open Body, Revelation, Faith and Revelation, in recent German theology. And in it, he set forth all the major nuances of German theology. And he says, look here, it is going down towards subjectivism. And here's Karl Barth. And here is, of course, the more extreme form. Karl Barth isn't as extreme as are these other people. But he's on the same side of the fence, and he's down, he slaps. This is where you end up in subjectivism. And though Karl Barth hasn't gone as far, he is nevertheless on that side of the fence. At that time, he wrote a book on Karl Barth, was the title of it. Dr. Smith can tell you about it. He has that book. Karl Barth. Now, that book was never translated, but in it he says that Barth is more nominalistic than was Occam. Now, who, you know who Occam was in the Middle Ages, the great nominalist? There were the realists and the nominalists. And the nominalists said that God does not speak directly into history and identify himself. God is wholly other, and God can turn into the opposite of himself in himself, as it were, God can arbitrarily, so to speak, call white, black, and black, white, truth, truth, and error, error, and change it around. Now, he says, Bach is more nominalistic than Occam. I'm quoting that. Because, Bar according to Bach, Revelation comes straight down, as he calls it, Senkrecht von oben, straight down from above, but it does not come horizontally with man. There is no history of redemption. The people of the redemption in the Old Testament is not something that progresses through history and comes to a climax in Christ. History, according to Barth, on this, on Barth's early work, Barth's early work was Romans, commentary on the epistle to the Romans. And he says, Revelation is as a tangent. Here's a circle. Revelation doesn't go into history. It touches history as a tangent touches a circle. And it is therefore wholly other holy other than is this ordinary history. Now, I'm not now going to talk about Bart as such. I'm just going to mention rapidly the development of Dr. Berkhauer's attitude toward Karl Barth and toward others. Now, this is his first criticism on Karl Barth. 
Then he wrote a book on, on scripture, Behenslander Schriftkritik, Principles of Scripture Criticism. And he talked in this book about the isolation of the Reformed view of Scripture, by which he meant that only in the Reformed view do you do full justice to the Scripture. How else can you do justice to the Scripture? Unless with the Reformed confessions you say that God controls whatsoever come to pass, how can you have absolute <coughs> revelation in, in this world? If God wouldn't control everything that comes to pass, there would be some things that would happen without his control that he couldn't predict and he couldn't say anything about. Certainly he couldn't infallibly, he could guess at it, but he couldn't say infallibly what will come to pass in the future if he has no control over it. Well, now, on the Roman Catholic basis, on an Arminian basis, God doesn't have control. Particularly, he hasn't got control over the will of man. Therefore, every will, every man, is a little bit of independent power which can change the course of events a little bit. Well, God can only hope that a million Frenchmen won't do this and a million Dutchmen, the rascals, won't do that. <laughs> now, don't you see? That was his statement with respect to Scripture. First, on Karl Barth, he's subjective. And that meant not just a little bit off the beam, but it meant that Barth's position was basically wrong in the sense that it builds on the human subject. Now, then, in addition to, to Karl Barth and on the scriptures, I'll have myself for the moment, what was the third subject that he brought up? Romanism. Romanism. Now, he wrote two books uh, in, in the early period. One that you're familiar with is, of course, Conflict in, with Rome. There's another one earlier than that, which the title, this is a long Dutch title. Now, therefore, you see, you can see even from this title, what is wrong with Rome? Well, Rome believes that the church is a continuation of the incarnation. Now, why does Rome believe that? Because it is wedded to the Aristotelian notion of process philosophy. Reality is a process from potentiality to actuality. And that's why Romanism does not believe that there is a once-for-all finished expression of God's will and revelation in history. Even the incarnation, the person of Christ, is, and what he does in history is not now finished and has not been given a final, finished interpretation through Christ and through the apostles. But it is a process, and it is carried on in history, in the church, and the church is, therefore, a living continuation, and therefore the teaching ministry of the church stands for the teaching of Christ. It is identical with the teaching of Christ, and that's the living voice of the church, and that's what the believers must listen to. They, when they, when they speak of scripture and about tradition, and they speak of them as together constituting the Christian faith, constitutive tradition, next to the Bible, and then you have the declarative tradition, namely the church declaring, expounding, setting forth what you mean by this scripture. You see that tradition and scripture are on a par with one another as source of information, source of revelation. And that, now that's a little bit uh, like you saying, I, uh, I love my wife. If you look in 
the canons of Trent, you know, the council that was held right after the Reformation, against the principles of the Reformation. It says, we believe in the Bible, sure, as the word of God. A formal declaration of faith in the scriptures as the word of God. But it also says, and then there are, of course, the traditions. It's a little like saying, I love my wife. Oh, yes, I love my wife. Of course, I also love my neighbor's wife. Now, it's in that also. Now, I hope none of you boys will get into that also trouble. I love my neighbor, and I also love my neighbor's wife. Well, the church loves the Bible, but it also loves tradition, and it loves to tell its members what it must believe. Now, that is what Birkhauer brings out in these two books on Romanism, and therefore it is so important for us to hold to the Protestant doctrine of the once-for-all finished character of God's revelation in Christ and therefore the creeds that are based upon this once-for-all finished revelation scripture, though they are not themselves infallible, they are human reproductions, but they are nonetheless essentially right in that they are right, the churches are right in excluding from the church such people as Romanists and others who do not believe in the finished character of revelation and put their trust in this Christ. Last, when was Easter Sunday? A week ago, Sunday, huh? Well, I went to Mass. I hope you all went to Mass, too. Well, I went to Mass. Near us is a Roman Catholic Church, and I wasn't early enough to get all of it. But I did pick up a few pamphlets that they sell for 15 cents, and one newspaper was all full of Martin Luther King. But I didn't pick that up. I didn't want to read that. But I didn't want to pay 15 cents for it, rather. <laughs> but I, uh, that means nothing when I say that. I only mean that I didn't want to spend the 15 cents. Now, uh, but I did pick up two other pamphlets, one explaining the new Mass and the new form of service in connection with the new Mass. Well, you see, what has been said in recently on Vatican II now, Berkhauer has a book on Vatican II, and he has a new book on Rome. I mean, that's Vatican II. He has a new book on Karl Barth, The Triumph of Grace, and he has a new two-volume book on Scripture. And I want to talk about those three, each one, separately for a moment, but I want to tell you what happened at Mass first, <laughs> or what happened after Mass aftermath of mass when I got, when I got home then I read this little pamphlet and it says look this Eucharist this is still this is the body of Christ it is being lifted up now Berkauer seems to think that the Vatican II is a significant approach toward a better position in theology and he thinks that these new theologians Karl Rahner and Ives Kungar, Hans Urs von Balthasar and Hans Kuhn, and a number of other recent, that they hold a better theology. Now, my friends, I just don't believe that. If you read through Hans von Balthasar, he's got a long book on Karl Barth, and he says in this book that Karl Barth's theology is just fine, essentially, 
But the church has had that sort of living, moving, active this position long before Karl Barth had it. And he says, in effect, to Karl Barth, come join with us and let's oppose those reformers who believe in the Allein Wirksamkeit Gottes. That is, they are the determinists. They had in Luther and in the case of Calvin, they both had a God who by his counsel determines what can and what alone will come to pass in advance, zum vornherein. Now, why he likes Bach, therefore, is because Bach doesn't believe what the reformers believe, because he has a nominalistic and open universe. Now, that openness, he says, has been in our thinking, and he's right. You see, that's why we looked at Aristotle's thinking. That's process from potentiality to actuality. That's the openness of the universe. Pure contingency is an aspect of reality. And that is what they mean by the primacy of faith, the primacy of the irrational. And that's why the church, which doesn't subordinate its thinking subject to the once-for-all finished revelation of God in Christ and in the scriptures, but which is a living voice in this reality, which grows with this reality, which takes these scriptures which are themselves in the process of this growth, and it goes beyond them, and it interprets them, and gives the present significance of them, which men, and claims that it gives that infallibly, which the first the church says nobody knows in the infallible revelation, there is no such thing, and then it claims infallibility for its own admitted infallible position. Now, that is what is said in this, in this explanation of the Mass. And then this will interest you particularly, Mr. Smith. There's a Dutch priest, and he wrote the second, and I picked it up for that reason. A Dutch priest. The Dutch have been pioneers in all heresies in this respect, don't you see? Also in much truth. But certainly they are today pioneers in new heretical views. They've written a marvelous new catechism in order to lead the church further astray. That is, they have, I've got a copy of it, it's been translated. And uh, now then, this Willems, this Dr. Willems, or not doctor, but S.J., priest, Dutch priest, explains what the faith is all about. And he does so in terms of Karl Barth's theology. He studied at Basel under Barth, and it says so right there in the pamphlet that in addition to studying elsewhere and so forth, doing his doctor work with Volk in Germany, he studies under Karl Barth. And you can see it in every word, especially in the last few paragraphs. Worship is worship of the holy other. That's his word for God. Be holy other. Now, don't you see? Here are the Roman Catholics who say Barth is super fine to them. And here's a Bardian who says Roman Catholicism. He's a Roman Catholic priest. So these Roman Catholics, and then Hans Kuhn, who's written on, on the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification, as Trent set it forth, and he finds no difference, no essential difference, between the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification as a process toward sanctification from the true Protestant doctrine if you only don't take it in that old-fashioned deterministic fashion way that Luther and Calvin did. Now, that is point number one in spite of this obvious tendency of Romanism today to mix in with 
the modern neo-Orthodox Protestant movement. Now, they are not moving. And Vatican II, if you take the documents of Vatican II, you no doubt have them. And I've read them over very carefully because this thing interested me because Berkauer is making so much of them as though they indicate a turn of the Roman Catholic Church to a better, a more Reformation type of thinking. And his argument is they're reading, they're more interested in the Bible and they're no longer talking about the traditions as standing on the par with the Bible as a second source of revelation. They don't, true, but they have not given up the idea that the church is the final, ultimate, infallible interpreter of this thing. And in any case, the Bible for them is still not a finished revelation of God. Therefore, there isn't the least bit of approach in Vatican II in its official documents or in any of these Roman Catholic theologians any intimation that I can see that they are turning toward Orthodox Protestantism. There's every intimation that they are turning toward the Bardian type of Protestantism. And then you can see why the neo-Orthodox theologians, why they would be very happy to join in with the Roman Catholics. Now, let me just finish that part a minute. I have a little pamphlet over here, you may have seen it in the library, on the Confession of 1967. Now, when Dr. Abraham Kuyper came to, the, to America here, as I said, he lectured on Calvinism. Now, those professors at Princess Seminary, and Dr. Voss told me this once upon a time personally, he says, we have to swear that we will not breathe or insinuate anything against the Westminster Confession of Faith well, they don't today breathe or insinuate. They openly and publicly and loudly repudiate. That comes right out of the heart and bosom of Westminster. Did I say Westminster Seminary? <laughs> Princeton Theological Seminary. The new Princeton. The new Princeton began in 1929. Everything went wrong after I left there. <laughs> How modest can you get? <laughs> well, that happened to be the transition point, and then this thing was introduced. You see, there were two boards of control, a board of administration, and that was mostly composed of liberals, and the board of directors, and they were composed, that was composed mostly of orthodox. But Dr. J. Ross Stevenson, the president, and some others, they wanted to make a liberal institution out of it, what an institution which they said would be in accord with the spirit of the movement of the church and which would represent every segment of the church. Well, they succeeded in having it reorganized at the General Assembly of 1928 in Minneapolis. I was there not to see it, but I was there listening in to some extent. Well, very well what happened. At that time, just before that, there had been written an Auburn affirmation, an, a an affirmation at Auburn, New York, in which it was said that the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, the inerrancy of Scripture, and the visible return of Christ, there must be a fifth I can't think of, but miracles, were things that you might believe if you care to, but you didn't have to believe them in order to be a minister of good, in good standing in the Presbyterian Church. Now, that had been done because, you see, prior to that, one of the General Assemblies, at the urgence of Dr. Clarence E. McCartney and others, had made this statement that, orth 
Presbyterians should believe these major doctrines. This Auburn Affirmation was an answer on the part of the liberals to this attempt on the part of the conservatives to rule the church. And they felt we got as much right in the church as they have. Now, of course, they didn't. The historic Presbyterian church is officially committed to the teachings of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and the liberals just have no right in it. But they claim that just because they were in it and they happened to believe these things, that you could throw the resurrection of Christ out and you didn't have to believe this, you had as much right. And now then what happened, as far as Princeton is concerned, when the reorganization took place, then two of these signers of the Auburn Affirmation, there were about 1,200, 1,300 of them, I think, uh, they were put on the board, on the membership of the board. Now then it was at that time that Dr. Machen and Dr. Wilson and Dr. Alice left Princeton Seminary because though they were asked to remain under the new board, which had been now one board in which the liberals now had the majority vote, and that was the purpose of it all. With the new signers of the Auburn Affirmation, the liberals had the majority. And so they were now intending, they said, in Robert E. Spear, who was a great evangelical missionary, and others, but Robert E. Spear in particular, who became the president of the new board, went all over the countryside, stump speaking, and so did Dr. Samuel Schwamer, who was a great missionary to the, to the uh, Muslims. They went stump speaking, now we can really be true to the Reformed faith because we're no longer inhibited by this horrible system of two boards conflicting with one another, one undoing what the other. We're now marching onward to glory. Well, they did, to destruction. That is, at, right, after, right soon after this, of course, uh, after a little bit, uh, they got a new president, Dr. John A. Mackay. Now, he had the reputation, he came from orthodox Scottish background, but he had by this time swallowed Unamuno's philosophy, a Spanish modern philosophy, Spanish modern philosophy, and he had become enamored of Karl Barth. He has written since what he calls a lyrical tribute to Karl Barth. Now, if you have to write lyrical tributes to somebody, you must love him. Now, he did, he did love Karl Barth, and then... At that time, Dr. Hepp from the Netherlands, I'm telling you this story, story out of inside information because I wrote Dr. Hepp at the time. Hepp in the Netherlands wrote an article in his paper, a strengthening of the reformed element at Princeton, he said, because Kuisinger, Dr. Kuisinger and Swamer, they came from the Dutch Reform, the Reformed Church of America, to join the faculty at Princeton when Wilson and Alice and Machen had left in protest, you see, strengthening. Well, he had never talked about the beginning of Westminster Seminary and the necessity of founding that because of the defection from the faith at Princeton, but he talked. So I wrote him a letter. I said, Dr. Hepp, I knew him personally. I'd seen him. He'd been in this country to lecture. And I said, would you speak of a strengthening of the reformed element at the Free University of Amsterdam if half of the professors first left and departed, and if Dr. Heikema, who was then in Groningen at Bardian, were put in his place? Well, that's the way I think there was a fair analogy, because you see, half of the strong men of Princeton, three of them, there were Foss, to be sure, and Hodge, and Armstrong remained, but they remained only because of practical circumstances. Foss was almost at retirement age, and Hodge, they just couldn't leave. 
and it wasn't possible for all of them to come to Philadelphia and join. I mean, that was a practical necessity, but I know that every one of those three, and I know at first hand that they were as against, as strongly against the reorganization as the men that left were. So I was certainly not going beyond bounds when I said, suppose that half the men of Amsterdam left and you got a Bardian, and that's what Heikema was. He introduced Bardianism into the Netherlands. Great blessing for the Netherlands. <laughs> he introduced it into, he wanted to supplement the Kuiper Bobbing theology with the, this great new reformed theologian. Well, I never got a letter back. These Dutchmen never answer letters. And, uh, but he did come to this country later, and then I saw him, and he couldn't help answering me then because he came to lecture at Westminster. He came to give the, the stone lectures at Princeton. We invited him to give a lecture, and he gave one of his lectures. Oh, yeah, you have to open no eats, he says. You have something there about... Oh, he says, that comes all straight. He says, that'll all get straightened out pretty soon. You'll get a new president and, and everything will be well again. Well, you see, he knew all about things in this country. When I came to the Netherlands and I told him that I was more in favor with Skilder than with him and the tendencies there, uh, I said, so far as I understand, yeah, you have to add that. He says, because you don't understand it. But he did understand everything here, you see. <laughs> well... He could predict that everything would get straightened out at Princeton uh, because they would have soon a new president. Well, now that new president was Dr. John A. Mackay, who straightened everything out by getting Emil Brunner over there and other people like that and others. I can't go into further detail. Now, and the present president of Princeton, McCord, is far down, deeper down the line even than John Mackay was. So the descent has been rapid. They sent the censors at Averno. The descent into the abyss has been rapid and deep. I mean, that's figuratively speaking. Uh, now, don't you see? Now that's what's happened. Now, under these circumstances, and, and then there was Dr. Henry Bates of the Christian Reformed Church. You never knew him, Mr. DeYoung. He was before your time, but he was a grand old man of the Christian Reformed Church. He was known all over better than anybody else in the Christian Reformed Church. Don't you see? Now, that's what's happened. Now, under these circumstances, and, and then there was Dr. Henry Bates of the Christian Reformed Church. You never knew him, Mr. DeYoung. He was before your time, but he was a grand old man of the Christian Reformed Church. He was known all over better than anybody else in the Christian Reformed Church. And he would go to the Netherlands, and he would represent the Christian Reformed Church, or rather misrepresent the Christian Reformed Church, wherever he went, because he's... When Kuiper was here and given the stone lectures, he asked at the conclusion, now let's hope that from this place there may issue forth other institutions and a great spread of Calvinism. And then Bates says, now he introduces a new edition of the stone lectures some 30 years later, and he says, what's become of this hope and expectation of Kuiper? Well, he says, there's Westminster. That's one daughter institution, so to speak. And here is Calvin College, and they've got a lot of graduates teaching here and everywhere, assuming that Westminster was just a daughter of Princeton, don't you see? And that every graduate of Calvin was still a Calvinist, don't you see? Which is not so. And we were not organized because we were just uh, proliferating, oozing out of Princeton. But we were 
organized because Princeton had gone wrong. I talked to Dr. Bates at the Senate meeting in Grand Rapids. I said, Dr. Bates, you're an older man than I am, and I have respect for what you have done for the Christian Reformed Church, and I want to honor you. But if you don't straighten these things out, I'm going to write in public against this. Then he would have his missionary monthly, and he would talk about, you see, the Heidelberg Catechism meant everything to him. And if anybody used the word Heidelberg Catechism, he was okay. So there was an ultra-modernist here in Pennsylvania, but he believed the Heidelberg Catechism. You see, that was their official standard. And then everything was beyond fundamentalism and modernism, this man wrote, well, meant Bardianism. I said to Dr. Bates now, and then he wrote about Machen, but he never wrote, he would write, write about Speer and about others from Princeton. I says, now you know perfectly well, Dr. Bates, that these people have led Princeton in the wrong direction. Yes, but they're my friends, he says. They're my friends. He said that literally, believe it or not. Well, he said, I'll write an article about Machen after this. He promised me that. Well, that was wonderful. So when Machen went to Ireland, where he was safe, and it was safe to say Machen is in Ireland, then he wrote a little news item about Machen. He didn't write about Machen when Machen was fighting the movement into the direction of modernism at Princeton. That was not news for Henry Bates, don't you see? Now, this is just in passing. I'll get it off my chest. Now, this is what has happened at Princeton, don't you see? It has gone on, and now George Hendry writes a book, or did write a book a few years ago, on Westminster Confession. And he says of it that its God is a dead God because the God is a static God in, expressed in terms of Greek static categories. And in the Bible, everything is living. Uh, which means, of course, Kant's activist philosophy is living. And so we have to have a new confession, he might as well have said, in terms of the modern activist uh, categories of thinking. Now, this, and then Trent Arott and others, the committee that wrote this confession, one of them says outright, and who's the president, who was the chairman of the committee? You remember who was the chairman of that committee? Downey. Downey. Yeah, that's right. He was... Dowie, Dowie, thank you, Mr. Dr. Dowie says that Bart's theology is the moving spirit back of this. Well, now, it's an amusing thing, except for the fact that it's so sad that there was this whole confession, which is Bardianism. To be sure the Trinity is there, and to be sure the Incarnation is there, but it's activated, actualized, according to the principles of Kant's philosophy, don't you see? It's a new outlook, a totally new outlook on life. I'll take up the question more in detail later in dealing with Bach. Now, that's back of it. And therefore, the Orthodox group that were represented and the concerned Presbyterians, one of them, an elder in the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, I don't know the man, gentleman's name, they got the statement on the scriptures to be modified a little bit and improved. The word of God written is in there now, is it not? All right. Now, they're quite happy about that, and now we can live with it. And now Dr. Gerstner writes an article in Christianity today and says, we can live with this now. Well, that's an amazing thing. How does earth can Dr. Gerstner live with that confession? How can any historic believer in the Westminster Confession? Now, it's very cleverly done. You still get the West... It's a book of confessions, and the Westminster Confession is still available. Now, there was an old store, or there is an old store, in our neighborhood where they had everything, don't you see? Dishes and groceries and watermelons and also old-fashioned long 
underwear in the basement. If you still want old-fashioned long underwear, in the, you can go in the basement. I'll dig some up. It's dusty. There's where the Westminster Confession is. And that's for fundies. We want them in the church so long as they're quiet. Now, but if you want to be in the stream, then, of course, you're with us. Now, the sad thing is that good evangelical people, undoubtedly evangelical people, like this elder of the 10th Presbyterian Church, that they are tickling themselves into believing that they have a right to live with this. Don't you see? Because the phraseology at one point is made a little bit more conformable to the phraseology of the Westminster Confession. It, that has not changed the impact and the import and the significance of the new confession one iota or tittle. Now, in this pamphlet, I've said the next step is, this was 67, then the meeting between the Reformed and the Lutherans in 77. The next, I've become prophetical there. I'm not sure that my prophecy is going to come out just that way. But I was at these conversations between Lutheran and Reformed theologians. Have you heard about them at the time? And uh, they asked somebody to come from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, somebody from the Christian Reformed Church, and Dr. Henry Staub was there. And I was first Dr. Stonehouse was there two times, I think, and after his death, and I was asked to go. We didn't want to take the position that we would not talk with him. Well, I was there, and Dr. Price of the... Missouri Senate Lutheran Church was there the first year, and he said to me, this is a gap fest, as far as I'm concerned. Well, <laughs> later on, uh, others were there of the Missouri Senate who were more pliable, and the Missouri Senate Lutheran Church is going down the drain so fast you can't see it for dust. Those representatives, I was there at the, uh, the fourth meeting. Uh, they had, well, I don't want to get into that now. So the next movement is, since we have now these Reformed Lutheran conversations, and the, and the, the results of that, those conversations have been published in a book, and those results are not available. Well, here are the Lutherans, and here are the Reformed. Now there said Dr. Hendry, and there sat CVT. You see, quite a distance away from me. And there was three or four younger men in between, but they were all Dr. Henry's servants. I mean, they were all conscientized and streamlined. That is, now here were the, the Lutherans, and here were the streamlined, conscientized, streamlined Lutherans. And you had one man from the, from the Lutheran Seminary, Mount Airy, uh, who knows the name? Anybody can give me the name. And then there was another one from Iowa. I can't now think of their names. I can see their faces yet. The one had, was a bearded fellow. He said, I know you're kind. He says, we were eating lunch together. I know what you're up to, and I know you're rascal, so to speak. And I know you want to bind us back to this old traditional point of view, and we're not going to be having people. That was all in good spirit. Now, and here was, here was the Missouri Senate people. Now, don't you see? Actually, here were the Reformed and here were the Lutherans. Here was the big table. In other words, here is LBJ and here is Ho Chi, Ho Chi Minh, uh, uh, or their representatives. But 
I said to two of those young men, here was the reform man, a young man from, from the South, by the way, from uh, Richmond, Union Seminary in Richmond. He was a reform man, Aber, a streamlined conscience reformed. Now, he, here was a, a Lutheran, Aber, not Luther, but a streamlined conscience reform. I said to both of those boys, they were arguing against one another on one point. I said, you boys, you're arguing against one another? You are the, you have deep inner spiritual union in Kant's critique of pure reason. Now that's to say, you are bound, you are bound together. And I says, where the real difference is, is between myself and you, my fellow formerly reformed, and then here were the Missouri Synod Lutherans. Missouri Synod. I was never so disappointed as I was then when I asked finally, when the chairman said, now you reformed people seem to have quite a little difference between yourselves. That was after I had spoken. <laughs> it was sad to say that I didn't agree with this modernization process. And, and much more so than we Lutherans had. Well, I, then I took that occasion because Dr. Hendry wasn't there that time. When he was there, you couldn't talk very much. But I said, no, I thought that the Missouri Synod believed the Bible as the infallibly inspired word of God historically. And that I remember the time of Machen, when Machen would go to, down there. They wouldn't have Machen lecture in their churches. Oh, no, Machen wasn't sound enough in the faith for them. Well, and Machen liked that. You might think Machen wouldn't like it. He was happy about it, that there were people who had such deep convictions on the absolute truthfulness. He was thought that was wonderful. And so I said, isn't it true that historically the Missouri Senate people have stood up for the same view of scripture that Warfield and the historic reform position held? And then uh, the president uh, asked one of these men, I can still see him sitting there. Is that so? Is that now? Is that true? Then this gentleman said, and he says, will you tell us what you think the difference is between the Missouri Senate Lutheran and the other Lutherans? What did he come up with? Well, he said, I think we are a bit more monolithic than the rest of them are. Now, how absolutely confusing can you get? Or whether on purpose or not. Now, don't you see what he should have said? Look, CVT and I believe the same thing, though he's on the Reform camp and I'm in the Lutheran camp. And these Hendry and these modern conscientized, they believe the same thing, and we should have had the thing reversed. The modern streamlined conscientized people should have been on one side of the fence, and those that believe with Luther and with Calvin, in other words, the differences between Lutheranism and Calvinism, are no longer at issue. They talk, importantly, about this confession, 1648, and, and the third use of the law, and all kinds of details of differences between Lutheranism and Reformed theology, historically. Well, that was all a facade. It was all just that much uh, absolute talk, and that was all. The big issue was not touched upon in these conversations, but these conversations were ordained by the Lutheran authorities and the Princeton authorities in order to make them useful for the church union movement, don't you see? That was the, was the whole purpose of it. Well, now, therefore, the Confession of 1967, then the Confession 
1977, Lutheran and Reformed, because they are now all one in Kant. Plus Christ, they have been unified. It's no longer Calvin's Institutes over against the Augsburg Confession or any such thing, not the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Confession, the Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran Reformed Confessions, the Historic Confessions, they're all wiped out. Now, then 1987, then Rome and Protestantism, they're having a, going to have a conference then of union. Now, you will live to see this. I won't. But you just watch and think back to this hour, how far along, how many hours I was wrong. <laughs> now, it's already beginning, my friends. Vatican II is now showing signs of interest. And Hans Urs von Balthasar says, look, oh, we still would have hard problems when it comes to the Pope and to Mother Mary <laughs> and to certain other things. We would maybe have quite a struggle on that. But when it comes to the basic doctrines of theology, we are no longer different from one another in any fundamental sense. Now, that's what Hans Kuhn says. And on justification by faith, the article stuntus et cadentis of the Reformation, he says there's no difference, basically, that he can see. Well, and so von Balthasar says. He writes on, on their view of analogy of being. And you remember that Karl Barth in his Kirkland Dogmatic writes against that? He says the analogientis idea, to me, is the idea of the Antichrist. Romanism is the most horrible thing there is. And then Hans Urs von Balthasar writes this nice book about him, and you haven't heard Bart say anything against the Catholic Church since, to speak of. He scarcely breathed anything against it. He's now been busy with Bultmann, of course. Uh, but at any rate, if, he says, if what Hans Kuhn writes is the Roman Catholic position, well, then, of course, the Roman Catholic position is pretty good. So, that's the next thing, 19... 97, then there will be the Hindus and the Christians, Roman Catholic, and then Martin Buber will be there too. <laughs> this is all in Geschichte, not <laughs> in his story, and so the dates, the calendar dates don't amount <laughs> to much difference. But don't you see? You think this is funny? There is a big book, Antwort, Answer, in which is a festival for Barth's 70th or 75th birthday, I forget, or is it 80th, in which any number of people have written articles of praise and honor of Barth. And there is one Hindu in there, uh, one of the sect of Hindus. He says, our position in Hinduism is just like Barthianism. And we like Bardianism. We don't particularly like Brunner. He was over here a couple of years, and he uh, had too much natural theology. But as for Bart, he has an absolutely other God, and we are absorbed into that God, and that's our point of view, he says. We've had that all these years. Now, that, those are the confessions. This is the 67, Lutheranism, Romanism, Romanism, I mean Lutheranism Reformed, Romanism and Catholicism, Christianity, and other religions. Now, I know this is all funny, 
And I don't mean it seriously, but I do too mean, mean it seriously. I mean, that is the drift. Now, I'll get back and finish up Birkhauer. I didn't quite finish him, but I'll get back to do that and then get back over. And I do hope to finish that today. Now, I think we got deflected slightly from St. Augustine, but I think I better finish this thing because Dr. Smith suggested it, but I'll not touch on it in detail. If there is time later, I'll bring it, come back to the matter at a later stage. Dr. Smith is obviously not here just now, and he's interested in this too. Now, I'm just indicating the change between the earlier Berkhauer and the later Berkhauer on these three things. Dr. Berkhauer is certainly most very influential in this country. What he says is almost gospel truth in sections of the Christian Reformed Church, and it is very closely followed, particularly his interpretation of Karl Barth by people like Karl Henry and others in new evangelical circles. And so what he says is very important, has been right along. Now, I've mentioned what he said on Romanism in his earliest book, Conflict with Rome. Now, that book is translated, and you are familiar with it, that the church is the continuation of the incarnation, and that is bad, that's anti, absolutely anti the Reformation idea that we have a once-for-all finished revelation through Christ in this world and in the scriptures. This introduces the process. But now in his discussion, his book on Vatican II, he thinks that things are far better than they formerly were, that the Roman Catholic theologians and the church itself has become interested in the scriptures. Now, I didn't mention that part this morning. I'll just mention it in passing now. What has happened, as I think has happened, in Vatican II and through the new theologians so-called in the church, they have not gotten interested in Reformation thinking. They have gotten interested in post-Kantian thinking. If you will look at these documents, you will see that the I-it, I-thou dimension is very prominent and that they have added the existentialist point of view, Now we'll talk about that later, to their own essentialist Aquinas point of view. Now, I'll come back to those things later, but I'm just putting it out now so that you can be thinking about it. That is why they now think they have much more openness. One problem they've always had, how they can hold on to the idea that the church's doctrine is irreformable, that it is finally unsettled and it is infallible, and then they have to add to this doctrine, don't you see? For instance, the ascension, uh, the immaculate conception and the ascension of Mary, the infallibility of the Pope, those are all teachings that have been added. Now, a number of years ago, in the previous century, people had, particularly Cardinal Newman, had tremendous difficulty in his book on progress of doctrine, how to relate this permanence idea with newness and identity with diversity. Well, now these newer theologians say we can do this much more easily than Newman could because we have a much more existentialist, uh, flexible point of view. There's much more newness, newness to doctrine and the irreversibility or the irreformability of doctrine. It's formal. It doesn't mean when Trent set forth certain doctrines and said these are final and finished that there couldn't be anything added to it. They couldn't have said everything about it, and so it's possible to add. Now, that is 
I would say, if we have time to get back to it, I'll take the documents of Vatican II in here, and we can see that. Now, that is one radical change in attitude toward Romanism that Birkauer has definitely undergone. But the second, much more conspicuous change pertains to Car his attitude to Karl Barth. In his earlier book, the title of which is Karl Barth, which has never been translated, Dr. Smith has it in his library. Maybe you do too, Jim. I don't know. Well, at any rate, you know of it. Uh, there he is so critical of Barth that he says Barth is more nominalistic than Occam. Well, that is, of course, the severest criticism that he could take, could make of Barth. Now, his later book, which has been so influential in this country, is The Triumph of Grace and the Theology of Karl Barth. That appeared, of course, first in Dutch. Then it was translated in English, and in the English book, he's got a whole long appendix criticizing my book on the new modernism, and says that I was much too extreme in rejecting Barth in toto. And his argument in this book is that though he criticizes Barth very severely still, so much so that he says there is, on Barth's view, the transition from wrath to grace is really unthinkable. He uses the word unthinkable. Nevertheless, in spite of that, he says Barth fits in with the line of Reformation thinking. Now, you see, that whole approach to me is not sensible. In the first place, I don't think you can deal with theological systems in that way. And certainly Karl Barth doesn't want to be treated that way. He says, as Gatum's Gunze, you take my whole position or you drop the whole thing. And he sets his whole position in its basic principle over against the orthodox position at every point. Now, we'll talk about that when we have time. Definitely, because I do want to talk about Barth. Now, but the point is that Beckhauer cuts him up into pieces or says certain phases and certain aspects. Or you can have a weakness in Barth at this point and a weakness of, at that point. And he does find weaknesses, very serious weaknesses. So much so that he criticizes him so severely as just indicated. Now, if you can't have transition from wrath to grace in history, well, then, of course, there isn't any Christianity in it because that's what Christianity is, that the wrath of God rested upon Jesus, the Son of God, in history, that he bore that wrath of God for us and carried it through for us, and that he rose from the dead and set us free from the wrath to come and set us on the staircase to eternal glory, not automatically, but by sanctification of the Spirit. Now, that is a transition from wrath to grace in history. Now, the reason why he says that's really not to be found in Bart is Bart's notion that what is evil isn't of course, the transition of a known law of God. But it is this nichtig, das nichtig, the non-being, which envelops us, which is, has a tendency to overwhelm us. I'll just, in anticipation of, in order to understand this at all and have it mean anything, I ought to say this much. For Bach, the attribute of grace is the all-controlling attribute. Now, here is righteousness, righteousness, and therefore, when we are under the wrath of God, suppose here we're sinners, and we're under the law of God and under his righteousness, and therefore we're under his wrath, because we have broken the law of the right, his holiness and his righteousness. Well, now, how serious a matter is this? 
Well, he claims it's much more serious, for instance, than Leibniz says when he deals with this world as the best possible world and evil is very bad, but there's always enough good to make up for the worship, for the bad. So Bart says wrath of God is very serious, and we are under all of us, not the elect only, but uh, the reprobate only, but the elect too. All men are always under the wrath of God. Now, how serious is this? Not too serious, because this is the penultimate syllable. That is, this is the next to the last. We are under the wrath of God in Christ. And since the wrath of God falls upon Christ, and we are in Christ, therefore Christ catches the wrath of God for all of us, and none of us get hurt by the wrath of God. And therefore there is no such thing as eternal punishment. There is no hell, he says, only there is the threat of hell. Now, therefore, the final word, the last syllable of everybody is yes. This is no. It's very simple to understand. I think Bart's so hard to understand. He's as simple as falling off a log in this respect. Namely, a child, if a parent, father, or mother punishes a child, maybe gives it even a hard spanking. Why does a parent or father or mother do that to its child? Doesn't do it to neighbor. You don't do that to your neighbor children. You do it because you love your children. You want to chastise them. You want to grow, have them grow up as obedient, good, well-behaved, fine children, people, human beings. In other words, the chastisement is for children who are children who will always be children. You don't throw your children to the crocodiles. You just don't do that. You don't even punish your neighbor's children. Well, now, that is how he regards all men. Now, his book, uh, his, in which he deals with election, that's the second volume in the Church Dogmatics, he says, and election, he says, yawal, yawal, yawal. I believe in election, and I believe in double election. That means I believe in reprobation as well as in election to salvation. And I'm a supralapsarian. Now, that ought to satisfy a man like Herman Hooksman in, the, in Grand Rapids, and it did for a while deceive him. Actually, believe it or not, Herman Hooksman was for a moment under the impression that he was getting a friend, don't you see? You have not having too many friends. He was looking for a friend. He was a great modern theologian who believes in double election, and he believes in reprobation, and he believes in... He's a supralapsarian. And Gordon Clark likes that because Gordon Clark is a supra-supra-lapsarian. Well, Abba, don't you see? There's a little condition attached to it. And that condition is, as he says very clearly and distinctly, a twofold presupposition. He says he's put new presuppositions under the doctrine of election. God, Christ is the electing God. Christ is the elected man. And therefore, there is no man unless he is elected, elected in Christ. He is a mitmensch Jesu. He's a fellow man with Christ. There was no, there is no man in himself. There is no God in himself. There is only God and man relation to Christ in the event, the Christ event. Now, I'll try to explain that more later. But the point is that therefore every human being is in the first place reprobate. But he is reprobate and is bound to, uh, by way of dialectical opposition to become positively a child of God's grace. Now, that means, therefore, 
universalism. To all intents and purposes, that is, of course, universalism. Now, it's an interesting thing. There was a period when Brunner, who was first with Bach, at this point, you know, Brunner said, um, look, we have an andere Aufgabe, a second task. We must, to be sure, start with the Bible with authority, but pretty soon we must also make plain to the non-believing people to the cultural consciousness in general what we believe and then Bart wrote a pamphlet he says nine that was the title of the program no and says we must go all the way down with with uh, Kierkegaard with Soren Kierkegaard in the pure cave in the cave of pure irrationalism that's erste Gebot, the first commandment he says we must start with the scriptures and God speaks to us straight from above uh, we make no attempt to explain what we mean. We don't care what the cultural consciousness of man says about what we teach. Now, the funny part of it is, and I'm coming back to Burkhardt in a second, that is to say, uh, now Bach goes all the way down here, and now Brunner stops over there. And he says, now, at Lieberfreund Bach, he says, now you're going from this extreme to the other extreme. Now you're having everybody saved. 